Good morning. 9.30 service. We are glad that you are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we will be today. Back in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we continue looking at the, the Beatitudes. I did not ask permission for this. Um, but, Ian, can I announce about the halls? Is that okay? Um, it's, it's too late now if it's not okay that I've done this. So Dave and Christy Hall, some of our missionaries are in town. They're gonna be sharing at 11 o'clock this week, next week, and for three weeks total, right? Next three weeks, starting today. Uh, so I'd love for you after the service to make your way over there. You get to hear about some amazing work that God is up to in a majority Muslim context where they are serving him faithfully as missionaries. We get to support, and we just love for you to hear about that. So I, I was just reminded of that. Uh, they didn't ask me to share that, nor did I get permission for it, but I... I'm gonna ask forgiveness rather than permission if need be afterwards. So anyway, uh, what room, are, what room, Ian? Two, all right, we got other people that know too. Awesome, 200. So after the service, 11 o'clock in there. I'm gonna sneak in for a few minutes before the 11.15. Just wanted you to be aware of that. All right, so a uh, little fact about myself that maybe you didn't know, maybe you did know. Did you know that I started out at college as an engineering major? Yeah. Let's praise God that I'm not designing any of the bridges or infrastructure that you're using on a daily basis. Let's really thank God for that. Because I found out real quick I did not belong in the engineering department at Texas A&M University. That's what I found out real fast, all right? So freshman year, I was taking calculus. I'd done pretty well in calculus in high school. My granddad was an engineer. A&M's a big engineering school. That's why I thought, hey, I'll do engineering. I like physics, the whole deal. So I get into my freshman year calculus class. First day, graduate student who's teaching all the freshmen walks in, all of us undergrad freshmen who just, you know, low people on the totem pole. This is a major, massive state school, so I'm hundreds and hundreds of students in this class. He walks in, and he doesn't, he speaks English, but not really, is how I would describe it. Uh, and now he's gonna teach us calculus. He was from Bulgaria, sweet guy, did not really teach calculus in the language that I could understand it. And so here's what that meant for me. It meant, all right, you're gonna learn from the book everything you need to learn. And we took these common exams. Now, let me pause there and say, how many of you who are out of college are like one of the main reasons you're glad you're no longer in college is that you don't take tests anymore? Yes, absolutely. And we all then feel really, we know, college students, we know. Right, all right, so we know that's the period of life that you're in. There's a lot of advantages. Test is not one of them, all right? So this is like my worst test-taking experience. So uh, I'm taking these common exams, which everyone who's taking engineering calculus freshman level is taking, and I'm doing all right. I'm learning from the book. I'd learned a lot of it in high school. Not a problem. Doing fine. Get to the final exam. Here's what I find out. No longer are these common exams prepared by some panel of professors out of the book. Now this is prepared by my professor alone who has been doing something I have not understood on the board every day for the entire semester. He has been doing calculus proofs. I don't even understand proof calculus. It was way outside of my realm of understanding. And I was, I had like a, a, like a 85, 86 going into the final. I finished with a C in the class. That's, that's how badly I performed on that test, on that exam. So I'm sure you have your story. Do you have a test story where you're like, oh my goodness, one of my best friends in college, his worst test story was that he had the wrong time for the final exam and showed up the day after the final exam had taken place. Thought it was a Wednesday final, it was a Tuesday final. How many of you students, that's your worst nightmare? You have that dream where you think to yourself, I didn't show up for the final exam, right? So tests can give us a little bit of anxiety, of course. Uh, the, the scriptures we're looking at are a little different kind of a test, hopefully not an anxiety-producing test, but the reality is, 
is that tests are meant to reveal what we know and what we don't know, right? That's the purpose of a test. It reveals what we know and what we don't know. Well, as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the Beatitudes, this first section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying, hey, the person who's truly blessed, the person who is sort of happy in the way God made you to be happy, that person is this kind of person. This is what a citizen of heaven looks like. This is what a, a Christian is supposed to look like. What he's really giving us is a test of sorts. Not to teach us what we know and don't know, but to reveal who we are. To hold a mirror up to us and to say, this is who you are. That's the test of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the best, greatest preachers of the 20th century is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I don't know if you've been exposed to him at all, but a fantastic preacher. And in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, which is really just a compilation of his sermons, he says this. It's a little bit longer quote, but I want you to hear it because I just found it impactful this week. He says, it's good that we should realize that if we take the Beatitudes as a whole, it is a kind of general test to which we are being subjected. How are we reacting to these searching tests and probings? They really tell us everything about our Christian profession. And if I dislike this kind of thing, if I am impatient with it, if I want instead to be talking about communism, that's just the political issue of his day, 1950s. If I want instead to be talking about communism, if I dislike this personal analysis and proving and testing, it simply means that my position is entirely contrary to that of the New Testament man. But if I feel, on the other hand, that though these things do search me and hurt me, nevertheless, they are essential and good for me. If I feel it is good for me to be humbled and that it is a good thing for me to be held face to face with this mirror, which not only shows me what I am, but what I am in the light of God's pattern for the Christian man, then I have a right to be hopeful about my state and condition. Now listen to this last sentence. <clears throat> a man, or we could say a woman, who is truly Christian, as we have already seen, never objects to being humbled. Never objects to being humbled. That struck me this week when I read it in my preparation. I wanted to share it with you all. We've been now a couple weeks away from this text in the Sermon on the Mount because we've been reflecting on the cross of Jesus and on the resurrection of Jesus uh, on Palm Sunday and Easter. But as we come back to this text, I wanted to just remind us and refresh us that this Sermon on the Mount and in particular these Beatitudes are here to teach us what a citizen of heaven looks like and to teach us where true happiness in life comes from, where blessedness comes from. And they are a test for us, a mirror, if we will. So what have we seen so far? Let's remind ourselves of that. Well, we've seen that Christians are poor in spirit, which means that they come to God knowing they are completely spiritually bankrupt, just empty-handed, knowing that I have nothing to offer him of merit or value. That's the starting place for a Christian is this sort of empty-handedness, this spiritual bankruptcy. It's what ushers us into the kingdom. That's why we heard, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've learned that Christians are deeply grieved by the sin that they commit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That we hate our sin and we mourn it. Christians are gentle and humble. We heard that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A Christian is one who is, who knows. There's nothing that you could say about me that is actually as bad as what I am truly outside of Christ. You can't offend me. You cannot speak about me in a way that is low enough that I would say, oh, that's actually accurate. 
you're always saying something better of me than what is actually true of me outside of Christ and his redeeming work. So we are gentle and humble. And Christians have an intense longing to conform to God's will for our, our thoughts, our actions, our emotions, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what the mirror has shown us so far. And as we've held that up, I pray that what's happened is God has done a work in you. He's doing a work in me. Uh, such a gift each week to reflect on these texts before I ever try to bring them to you and to ask the question, Lord, am I these things? And where I am not, make me these things. So this week we come to Matthew chapter five, verse seven, and we hear these words, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So if you grab sermon notes on the way in, let me apologize, the, the outline has changed a little bit. Let me give you the outline. It's a lot of the same stuff that's there, but I just wanna first ask the question, what is mercy? So we need, if blessed are the merciful, then the first question that naturally comes to mind is, well, what is mercy? Let's examine that from a biblical point of view and ask, what, what is it then? Then the second question I wanna ask is this, and I think it's also naturally, we're inclined to it by the text here, is why is it that only those who give mercy receive mercy? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why, why do only the merciful receive mercy? Let's talk about that for a few moments. And then the last thing I wanna do is give you some observations about mercy, and you'll actually find those on your sermon notes page there. Some observations about mercy that help us become merciful, I hope, I pray. So that's our roadmap. Let's do those three things. Let's ask that first question then. What is mercy? So I'm gonna give you a two-part definition, and first, we're prone to think, I, th I think we are prone to think, uh, as mercy, uh, of mercy in this first way, and it's this. We usually think of mercy as not punishing someone who has done something wrong, of forgiving rather than punishing. That's just a short definition. Someone's done something wrong, mercy would be that we would not punish, but we would give mercy. We would give forgiveness rather than punishment. I, that's the way we typically think about mercy, and it's absolutely a biblical way to think about mercy, or at least one part of a biblical version of mercy. Let's where do we see that in the scriptures? Ephesians chapter two, verse four. In verses one through three, Paul tells us all of these things that we were by nature, children of wrath, in rebellion against God. And then he says in verse four, but God, being rich in what, church? Mercy, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, God's mercy is that rather than punish you, he has forgiven you and made you alive with Christ in his resurrection. Or Hebrews chapter eight, verse 12, which is, it's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, which is this great Old Testament text about the new covenant that we come to, uh, that will come. Jeremiah's prophesying about the new covenant that God will make through the Messiah that he will send. And he's quoting God in Jeremiah chapter 31 when God says this, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And the author of Hebrews takes that up to remind us what we have when we have Jesus. We have forgiveness of sins. Rather than punishment, we get what? Mercy. The, perhaps the most famous place in the New Testament where this type of mercy is displayed is in a parable in Matthew chapter 18. We call it the parable of the unforgiving servant. And if you remember this parable, there's a servant who owes his master a massive debt. And Jesus tells this parable in response to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Should I do it even seven times? And Peter thinks he's really offering something very, very big there. 
Should I do it seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, he's not, he's not saying that's the number. He's saying as many times as it's needed. As many times as forgiveness is needed and then sought out and repentance is brought, you should, you should forgive. So he tells this parable and this servant owes this master a huge debt and the master forgives it. The servant comes and says, just give me more time to pay it. I, I can't pay it now, but give me more time. I'll pay it. And he says, actually, I forgive the debt. Then that same servant goes away and he finds another servant who owes him a much smaller amount of money and he says to him, pay me my money. And he says, I can't, be patient with me. He says, no, and he throws him in prison for the money that he owes him. And then in verse 33 of chapter 18, we find these words. Again, this definition of mercy. The master finds out about this and says to the servant who didn't forgive but who was forgiven, he says, you should have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. So do you see there that the, the first part of a definition of mercy biblically is this idea that someone has done something wrong to us or in particular to God himself, has committed an offense, and rather than being punished for that, there is mercy given, there is forgiveness given. That, that's the first understanding of mercy. I think most of us tend to think about that. Uh, when we think about mercy. Now, of course, the greatest expression of mercy in all of scripture and in all of human history is the cross of Jesus. We're at the cross, you and I, all who come to, to, to God by faith in Jesus Christ, all of us have received mercy. That our debt was paid, our sins were forgiven. Rather than being punished, he took our punishment, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but he took our punishment, and we were set free. We were given what, church? Mercy, mercy upon mercy. But more broadly, the second part of a, of a biblical understanding of mercy is simply this. A second understanding of it is that mercy is meeting a need that somebody has. Mercy is meeting a need that someone has. Now the reason I say that that's a, maybe it's a less common understanding of mercy, but look with me. Let me just point out a few texts to you. In the same gospel, gospel of Matthew. So that's important because Matthew uses mercy here in Matthew chapter five. It says, blessed are the merciful. And then he uses mercy in Matthew chapter nine, verse 27. In Matthew 15, 22. And in Matthew 17, 15. And he's telling these stories about these people who are sick. They're lame, they're lepers, they're deaf. And they come to Jesus and they ask for what? Mercy. They say, Lord, have mercy. Now, it's possible that all of them perhaps see their sickness as some way rooted in God's punishment of them. And so they're saying, oh, have mercy rather than this punishment that I'm receiving. But Jesus corrects that way of thinking, if you remember, in the Gospels. And he says, these sicknesses are not the result of the fact that these people themselves have sinned. He said they're there by the, by the providence of God, but also they're there to show his glory when he brings healing to them. And one of the things that we understand from that in the New Testament is that our illnesses and sicknesses don't all come directly because of our own sin. They come because we live in a world that is facing the consequences of sin. And whether, whether we are the ones who have sinned or not, sin has real consequences in the world and we all experience them. That's why illness and sickness exist. Does that make sense? And so, when we see that Jesus is saying, or these people are crying out to Jesus and saying, Lord, have mercy on me and heal me. In other words, use your power to do something about my need. Use your power 
to do something about my need. The most famous place that this understanding of mercy shows up in the scripture is in another parable, and it's in Luke chapter 10. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Are y'all all familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan? Some of you may not be. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Let me kind of catch you up on that parable of the Good Samaritan, somewhat common even in our, we have Good Samaritan laws in place uh, in different states and around the country, so people tend to be familiar with this story. But the story uh, is told in response to, to a lawyer coming to Jesus and asking him, how, how can I receive eternal life? How can I be right with God? And Jesus says, well, what do you see in the scriptures? And he says, well, the greatest commandment is love the Lord, and the second greatest commandment is love my neighbor. And Jesus says, that's right. That's the, that's the summation of the law. You've answered correctly. And then Jesus, to trap him under sin, says, do this and you'll live. And the right response to that should be, I could never do that. That should be the right response. But the lawyer, it says, desiring to justify himself, that's a bad idea, desiring to justify himself, says what? Who's my neighbor? In other words, what's the minimum amount that I can do and still qualify? Who do I not need to love? Who's not my neighbor? And the parable of the Good Samaritan is told so that the, we learn the answer to that question is, well, everyone, everyone is your neighbor. If the Samaritan is your neighbor, everyone's your neighbor. And Jesus does something brilliant in it by flipping and making the Samaritan the hero and the Jewish man the one who's been robbed by the side of the road, who's been beaten and bruised. And other Jewish men, religious men, pass by him and the Samaritan stops not, he could have made the same point, everyone's your neighbor, by making the Jewish man the hero, but he's gonna reveal their prejudices and show them even more how much their need is for grace and mercy by making the Samaritan the hero. But again, here's what we find at the end of that story. When he tells the story in response to this, who is my neighbor, then at the end, Jesus asks the question. He says, who proved to be a neighbor in this story? And the answer of the lawyers, again, correct. He says, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. Now, what I want you to see there is that the Bible there for us is giving us that other definition of mercy. If the one who showed mercy uh, is the answer to the question, then what he's saying is, part of mercy is meeting, using your resources to meet a need. And now, the reason I share that with you the reason I share that with you is because you're not truly merciful unless both of those things are present in your life. And I would say I was convicted this week because by the grace of God, I think I might be able to answer that question, am I forgiving those who sin against me? Am I showing mercy rather than, than seeking punishment? I think the answer to that has been yes. Uh, and I'm, by the grace of God, that's true. And he's sanctifying me in that way. But when I saw this other side of mercy, I found myself convicted. So how often do I cross to the other side of the street? How often do I find it inconvenient to use whatever resources I have to meet the need of someone else? How often do I fail to seek out the opportunities that are needed or respond to the ones that come across my path in a way that says I have shown mercy and I can't call myself merciful and therefore blessed unless both those realities are present in my life. I don't know how it will hit you, but that's how it hit me this week, and I want you to see the full scope of the way the Bible talks about mercy. Do you see it? Blessed are the merciful. Now, it might help to, to make sure we see the connection between those two understandings of mercy, because they're not disconnected, are they? The, the, first, uh, the first is just a specific expression of the second, and here's what I mean by that. When I say mercy is using your resources, your power, your strength to meet a need, then when we understand 
that also mercy is, for, is giving forgiveness rather than punishment, well, that's a way of meeting a need, isn't it? When you give forgiveness, when someone has sinned, there's a need that's created by that. There's a need for forgiveness. And when they come in repentance to you and ask for forgiveness and you give it, then what you're doing is you're meeting a need that they had. It's not a physical need, it's a spiritual need. So that's how the, the first becomes an expression of the second. But we might also see it this way. We can see the relationship this way. Caring for someone in need is a way of dealing with the consequences of sin in the world. In the same way that my forgiving someone is a way of dealing with the sin that they have to deal with now. They've sinned, they need to deal with it. And one way of dealing with it is coming in repentance and receiving forgiveness. In, a, in the same way, meeting the need of someone who is beaten up by the world and the consequences of sin in the world and the fallen nature of the world, when I seek to use my strength to minister and care for them, I'm showing mercy and I'm dealing with the consequences of sin. Not because forgiveness is necessarily needed by them in that situation, but because another expression of mercy coming against the consequences of sin is needed. Does that make sense? In a more broad way. So thinking about mercy in both those terms is deeply important, I think. Then the second question I said we wanted to ask is, why do only the merciful receive mercy? So when we see Jesus say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, the implication is perhaps you don't receive mercy if you're not merciful. So is Jesus saying that we have to give mercy to get mercy? Is he saying that? That's the natural question that we want to ask there. And I will say that the answer is yes and no. Right? So here's what I mean by yes. And some of you are like, great, that does not help at all. I'm going to explain, all right? So yes and no. No, no in the sense that we might believe in Christ and then God would withhold mercy until he observes whether or not we choose to give it. So that he would be saying, well, I, you know, hey, yes, you've come to me in Jesus and I say that I'm going to give you mercy, but I'll give you some now and then I'll keep adding to that saving mercy when I see if you give mercy. He does not withhold saving mercy from all who come to him by grace through faith. And we would be wrong to see that what Jesus is saying here is, okay, I'll give you mercy once I observe if you give mercy. That's not one. When we see this, if we're prone to think that, we always need to remember we interpret any one scripture by the rest of scripture. Right? And so when we see that Jesus testifies to the gospel of grace and the full receipt of mercy by coming to him through faith in Jesus, then we understand that if we were to interpret this text in a way that said, well, I'll only get mercy from God if I give it, and so it's gonna be this thing where over the course of my life we're gonna find out whether or not I've done enough in giving mercy. That would be a contradiction of the gospel of grace, so that can't be what is meant here. That's the first thing we need to see. The second thing that we need to see is that none of us would ever be saved if getting mercy depended on giving mercy to the degree that we needed to. Not a single one of us. The mercy that you and I need is far greater than a mercy that we will ever be able to give. Ever. And so none of us would measure up by that standard. That's deeply important for us to see. But let me tell you what, why it is yes. Because what Jesus is saying is the mark of someone who has received mercy from God is that they give mercy to others. And if you fail to give it, then you identify yourself as one who has not truly received it. Does that make sense? If you fail to give it, you mark yourself as one who has shown that you have not truly received it. I, I like to travel. Anybody like to travel? 
So I really particularly like international travel. I love going around the world, seeing what God is up to in, in different places, and I've had the privilege of getting to travel to a number of different countries and places. And man, it's always exciting. But what you wanna know one of my favorite moments in travel? After you've been gone for a while, you're just ready to come home, right? You're ready to be somewhere, uh, be with your family, be reunited with your family. Uh, some of my favorite moments are the moments that I get to be back with my kids. True story, one of the best moments, most hilarious moments of my life is coming home from a, a trip to India uh, and being greeted on the stairs by my daughter. I'd come in late. She'd gotten out of bed to greet me, got three steps above me, said, my stomach doesn't feel very good, and vomited all over me. <laughs> that was my welcome home. And you know what? I'll take it. Right? I'm home. Wow. All right. But I love that moment in customs where you get back into the United States and you're coming into customs and you pull out that blue passport, right? And when you're traveling, isn't one of your worst nightmares losing your passport? You check your pockets all the time for it. You're like, wherever you're hiding it, holding it, you're like, have the passport, have the passport, have the passport. I used to lead groups of students on overseas trips and I must have said 50 times a day, do you have your passport? Do you know where you put your passport? Is your passport, in fact, give me your passport. I'm going to hold it for you. A worse nightmare than me not having my passport is having to leave a 15-year-old at customs because they forgot their passport. That's my worst nightmare, right? But when you come and you take your passport and you got that blue passport, it says United States of America, it shows evidence that you are a what? Citizen of the United States. And when you hand that passport to the customs agent, what does he or she say? Welcome home because you have the passport. Mercy is like your passport that shows you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. When you show mercy, you show evidence. You show your passport. And God says, welcome home. Welcome home. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the other thing that you need to recognize there is in, in this Sermon on the Mount, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the promise given is the only one that is present tense and all the rest are future tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you have it. It's yours if you come to God empty-handed. It's yours, you're in it, you're a citizen. But then every other one, blessed is this kind of person, for they shall have this. It's future tense. It's talking about something that's coming for us. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, he's not thinking about the daily mercy we receive, although we do, and we are in the mercy of God now. He's asking the question, who will stand before the throne of God at the end of all time, at the end of all things, and find that he says, you get mercy? Who will be that person? And that person is the one who has shown evidence that they are a citizen of that kingdom by coming to Jesus through faith and receiving his grace. And the natural result of that is that they become a merciful person. They are full of mercy. And that is the evidence that they will be the one who will stand before the throne and find that God says mercy. Mercy to you. You with me? Another way to see that is think about, we talked about the building action of this sermon that Jesus is preaching, how he's very intentional about what comes and then what comes next and what comes after that. And think about the building action of what we've come to, what came before this and what comes after. He's already said the person who comes to God empty-handed becomes a citizen of the heaven, and then uh, citizens of heaven. And then they grieve their sin because they hate it. 
And then they're full of gentleness and humility because they see truly who they are in light of who God is. And no one can say, any, I mean, they, they're no longer concerned about their own reputation or what others might say about them because it's whatever someone might say. It's not as bad as who they truly are outside of Christ. They're humble and gentle. And then that person, and then that person uh, longs longs to be righteous the way Jesus is righteous. Now think about, if all those things are true, that person is a person who will show mercy, who will be full of mercy because of all of those other things, their poverty of spirit, their mourning of their sin, their hungering and thirsting for righteousness, their humility, their meekness, their gentleness, all those things, don't they lead to a merciful person, church? Yes, they do. So he's building upon that. He's saying this, this is what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom. Now, let's make a few observations uh, about the nature of mercy that will help us grow in mercy. So we've asked what is mercy? We've asked why do the merciful, only the merciful, receive mercy? Now let's ask what are some observations about mercy? We see some other places in the scripture. So the first one is this. Mercy is an attribute of God. That's the first observation. Mercy is an attribute of God. Exodus chapter 34, verse six, Moses is speaking to God and God reveals who he is to him. I'm not even gonna read this whole description. I just want you to hear the first thing that God says about himself. In Exodus chapter 34, verse six, when he wants to tell Moses who he is, what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Then he goes on to say, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but you know, who no means just overlooks iniquity, who deals with it, who deals with sin. To be merciful is not to not deal with sin. It's just to deal with it through the work of mercy. But the first thing God says about himself is that he is what? Merciful. That's important. It's not by accident that God would say that about himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul is coming to talk to the Corinthian church, which is a famously kind of messed up church. I mean, they got a lot of messed up stuff going on in this church. And Paul's introduction to them is to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. In other words, he's saying, this is who God is, Corinthian church. He is the Father of mercies. And when you hear Father, think source of. The, the one who, who has it in in massive amounts and quantities and then, and then distributes it. He is the father of it, the source of it. So listen, why does that help us give mercy? We understand that it's, part of, it's one of God's chief attributes is that he is merciful. Why does that help us? Well, because the, the aim for all of us as Christians, the reward that we are looking for is not just that we would get mercy when we stand before the throne of God. The real reward that we're looking for is that we would know God himself. Is that we, we say that a lot, right? that would be reconciled to God through Jesus. And the reward, is not, the reward is not eternal life. The reward is eternal life in the presence of God, that we would be with him. That's the reward, to know him and to be with him. That's the reward we seek after. And if God's nature is to be merciful, then when we show mercy and when we receive mercy, we experience him and we know him more fully and more closely. So we can go in repentance and ask for forgiveness knowing that if we get mercy, we're gonna know God better. And we can give mercy because the reward that we're looking for is not, look, when you give mercy, it makes you vulnerable. You've forgiven and you've let go of the right to punish. And that does, it makes you, it makes you vulnerable. It's why it's a hard thing to do. But when you give it, don't you know that the reward of that is that you will know God more closely 
for having given mercy. You will, you will identify with him more. You will understand him more. You will join him in his very nature and in his ways. And that's the reward. Does that make sense? That's what we're looking for. So mercy is an attribute of God. The second thing that we see that helps us become mercy givers is that mercy is costly. Now I share this with you. I share this with you because I want you to understand that unless you know how costly it will be to give mercy, you won't be prepared to give it. And then often you will fail to give it because the cost will feel too great. Mercy is always costly to give. And the cross, of course, is the great demonstration of that. But why is mercy costly? It goes back to what we said before. Mercy is costly because forgiving someone for something they've done doesn't mean that debt that has been created by the sin has gone away. Mercy is just the question of who will pay the debt. And when you give mercy, rather than make them pay the debt, you are paying it. Think about the story in Matthew 18. When the master forgives the debt that is owed to him, does the master get his money back? No. The servant doesn't have to pay. He gets mercy. He gets forgiveness. Who paid the debt? The master did. The master paid the debt. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The debt for our sin didn't go away. God didn't just go, oh, I'll give you mercy and I won't worry about the payment that's necessary, the debt that's owed. He says, no, I will pay it myself. That's why mercy is so costly. It always involves payment. It just switches who pays. The mercy giver pays now rather than the mercy receiver. And anytime you've received mercy, someone paid a debt for you. Someone paid a debt for you. I've told you the story before about how I was out uh, boating with some friends. I had a bunch of high school kids out on boats and freshmen, we take them out for kind of an introduction to the youth group when I was a youth pastor. And my friend, uh, several friends would bring their boats out on the lake with us so that we could, we could tow around a bunch of kids. And I was driving a boat and I made a mistake and I ran into my friend's brand new boat. It was its first time out on the lake. And I thought to myself, I cannot afford to pay the debt that I have just created. Oh, do I need mercy. And my friend, Todd Garrett, showed mercy. He said, he said it's fine, forgiven, don't worry about it. And I, I was literally going to him, I was just like, I was like, just give me time, I'll pay it off. I, I think I could afford maybe like 50 bucks a month for the next 30 years. You know, whatever is needed, I'll pay it, I'm so sorry. And he said, Trent, it's forgiven. Did that make the boat any less damaged? No, who paid the debt? Todd Garrett paid the debt because he showed mercy. Mercy is costly. Be prepared. You won't be able to give it unless you know it will cost you. The third thing we see is that salvation and service are always and only the result of mercy. They're always and only the result of mercy. Titus chapter three, verse five says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In other words, what Paul is saying to Titus there is he's saying salvation is always mercy. There's no part of salvation. There's not even an inkling. Not, not, one, not one shred of the salvation that you've received has anything to do with your merit. It is all mercy all the time. Any salvation that you receive is purely and wholly mercy. It's like, there's no part of you that's like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, you deserve a little bit of it. And then the rest of it is, is gonna be mercy. No, it's all, every shred of it is mercy. And then 1 Timothy chapter one, 
verse 12 through 13, Paul is talking about his former life and how he persecuted the church. And, he's, and listen to what he says about the mercy of God. He's saying, it's not only the salvation I received that's mercy, it's also every moment of getting to serve God. Every part of what he's given me to do after being saved is now pure mercy. Not one bit of that is even like, oh, okay, well, Paul's pretty smart, so I should give him this job to do, and good idea, God. He's saying, no, even that is mercy. So he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What he's saying is both my salvation and my position of service to God is mercy. Here's the point that I want you to get. Your whole life is covered in mercy. Every moment of every day is mercy. Any act of service that you give to God as a student, any, any conversation about the gospel with a neighbor, Tomorrow morning, those of you who have jobs are gonna wake up and whether you work in your home or you work outside of your home, you're gonna wake up and you're gonna go do that work and it's mercy that you are doing it. You do it under the merciful hand of God. Everyone breathe in right now and breathe out. Mercy. Mercy. He sustains you with his mercy. Every part of your life and mine we owe to the mercy of God. That he would not strike us down or do away with us. That he continues to say, Lamentations chapter three, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You will wake up again tomorrow morning and you will find that his mercies are there to greet you. They will be there. That's the thing is not only is every part of your life and my life just mercy, 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 and mercy again, and then mercy a third time, and then mercy once more. Not only is it all mercy, we know that we will receive it. It's not, oh, it's been mercy every day. Here's hoping that tomorrow. No, you are assured and guaranteed in Christ Jesus, mercy. The reason that's important to know is that if you know that every part of your service and salvation is God's mercy, you're gonna be more prone to give it to others. You're gonna be more prone to give it to others. And then the last thing I want you to see, and then we'll sing together, is that mercy draws people to God. We know this, don't we? Mercy draws people to God. People who are running from him are drawn back by mercy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you see what he just said? Paul says, the mercy that God showed me was like, it caused others to believe in him. Because he said, well, if Paul can receive mercy, then surely I can too. The mercy you and I receive is meant to draw others to God. And by the way, we shouldn't just assume because they look and they go, oh, Trent, Trent got mercy, I guess I can get mercy too but because they experience mercy through us as well. That I then show mercy, and they say, oh, he's received mercy, he gives mercy, or she gives mercy. Now, perhaps I can receive it as well. Not just from them, but from God. Mercy 
draws people to God. It does. And don't we want that? What greater motivation could there be to give mercy and to be full of mercy than to say, oh, when I meet that need, when I care for that person, when I give that forgiveness, I am showing them that God delights in them. They can be drawn back to him. Friends, can I just say that that kind of mercy, as we watch in our society, it, it, it becomes harder and harder to believe as you watch the unfolding events around us. It becomes harder and harder to believe that a secular society is content for us to have our beliefs and to operate in our own separate sphere. It becomes more and more obvious that they simply want to eliminate our beliefs from society. That seems, and I'm not one that's prone to think that way, to be honest. I'm prone to give the benefit of the doubt, but more and more it becomes harder to believe that a secular society doesn't want to eradicate our beliefs from this society, to eradicate our voice. Do you know what's gonna be most important in light of that reality? Humility and mercy. If we're going to be a people who are going to be sinned against and attacked, mercy. <laughs> mercy is gonna be the most important thing. Humility, meekness. Boy, this seems like a time. I, I didn't plan this sermon series because of that in mind, but I want you to see it so clearly. Last thing I wanna say, and this maybe is for more of those of you who don't, who you're with us today and you don't believe in Jesus, and <laughs> for those of us who do, this is the perspective we should take towards every person we encounter. Listen to Psalm 145, verse eight and nine. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's quoting from Exodus. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Not saving mercy, but sustaining mercy. Don't you see it? Friend, if you don't believe in Jesus, you've been hearing me talk about the mercy we receive in him, you are experiencing God's mercy right now. Those of you who do not believe in Jesus, and I would urge you and implore you, he is sustaining you with his mercy. He is patient with you. He is allowing his mercy rather than his judgment to be on you right now. It's not a saving mercy. You have to come to Jesus for that. But it is available to you. And you should see right now in this moment, I beg you, I implore you to see that his mercy is on you and you may not even be believing that he exists and he sustains you with his mercy. Let that be cause to see that he would give saving mercy if you would turn in repentance. Turn in repentance and receive saving mercy. Followers of Jesus, every person we encounter is being sustained by the mercy of God. His mercy is over all that he has made. Let us then urge and implore, see that mercy, live with it towards others and implore them into the saving mercy that's offered in Jesus Christ. Would a watching world say of us, people of God, they are a people full of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we, man, we love the simplicity of your word. You are so good to us. We're not smart people, and you are so simple with us, and you say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So take that word now. You spoke it. It is yours. Plant it in our hearts. Where there is unforgiveness in us, may we be determined to walk out of this place today and give mercy, give forgiveness. Where we have walked to the other side of the road and we've seen a need, rather than moving towards that need, change that in us, that we might be a people of mercy. We know 
that we have received mercy upon mercy. Fresh mercy today has been ours because of you, Jesus. And so now our right response is to praise you, to praise you for your mercy. We love you. Receive our praises, Lord Jesus. It's an act of mercy that you even receive the praises that we sing. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.